Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Amen. May the Lord help us as we study his word. I want to ask you this morning to think back. I wonder if any of you remember uh, some of those disputes or maybe you engaged in some of those disputes back in grade school uh, that always ended up with this phrase. Oh, yeah. Well, my dad can beat up your dad. Any of you remember those? Probably ladies, you didn't engage in those, but men, uh, some of us did. They always began something like this. Boy number one said, my dad is the best. And boy number two said, no, my dad is the best. Well, my dad is better than your dad. Well, my dad is taller than your dad. Well, my dad is stronger than your dad. And then finally, my dad can beat up your dad. That's how it went. And usually by that time, the teacher would intervene and keep things from going to blows, keep the dad's sons from beating one another up, and thankfully so. As adults, we look back on that and we recognize all that's wrong with that kind of an argument. We certainly don't want our children to be boastful. We don't want them to be argumentative. We don't want them, if we're believers, to idolize us. And we definitely don't want them going to fisticuffs over whose dad is better. So I say we do realize as adults that those kind of childhood arguments uh, really go nowhere fast and aren't very helpful. But if you are the dad in question, it does put a little bit of a spring in your step to know that your son thinks that highly of you, doesn't it? There is something heartwarming about a boy bragging on his daddy. And that reminds me that there is a spiritual lesson in those boyhood quarrels. Namely, that we ought to be able to boast that confidently and that proudly and that devotedly, maybe not that 
obnoxiously, but that proudly of our Heavenly Father and of His Son, Jesus Christ. Without being contentious toward others, without being condescending toward others, we ought to be able to say to our neighbors and our families and our co-workers and the onlooking world, my Father is the best Father there is, bar none. There is no one like Him. And my Savior, Jesus, is the best Savior there is. He's better than any religious figure or ritual that you can roll out. He is the best. We ought to be able to boast in Christ like that. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews has been doing now for seven chapters. Boasting in Jesus, who is chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, greater than all the Old Testament prophets, who is better than the angels, chapter 1 who's greater than Moses in chapter 3 and greater than Joshua in chapter 4 and greater than the entire Old Testament priesthood in chapter 7 that we saw last Wednesday night. Jesus is best of all. That's what he's been saying again and again and again. Boasting in Jesus. Jesus is best of all. That's his boast. I hope that it's becoming ours. As we follow this author, this boastful In Jesus, author, into chapter 8, we find that he continues engaging in boasting. And what I want to do is call attention to the fact in verses 1 and 2 that I think we should read these verses with an emphasis on the word we. The word we there in the middle of verse 1. You may recall in chapter 7 that our author concluded that chapter by comparing Jesus, our great high priest, with all the priests of the Old Testament and saying how much better he is than them. And now he continues that theme as he opens chapter 8 and says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. I think the emphasis should be on the word we, because what he does here is he begins this chapter by saying, here's been my main point so far. What has been my main point so far? And then he goes on and he describes how Jesus serves not in the earthly tabernacle that was pitched by man, but in the heavenly one. He tells us Jesus' blood is poured out not simply on the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, but Jesus' blood is poured out before the throne of God above in heaven. And he says, that's the main point of what I've been saying. Now, that's an odd statement because he hasn't been saying anything about that so far. He hasn't said anything about the true tabernacle in the heavens yet. He hasn't said anything yet about Jesus offering himself in a better sanctuary than the Old Testament priests. He's compared Jesus to the Old Testament priests in other ways, but not in that way. And yet he says, the main point of what I've been saying is this. We have a priest who didn't offer up himself in an earthly tabernacle, but in a heavenly one. And yet he hasn't said that yet. So I think the emphasis here is on the word we. The author's saying that his main point so far is that we have a high priest who's been offered in a better tabernacle. The main point is not the better tabernacle, but that we have this priest. And that those who don't cling to Jesus, those who look for help from other priests, those who remain enamored with the Old Testament, don't have this priest. The main point is that we have a priest who is different. So he says the main point of what I've said so far is that we have a priest who's better than any other high priest. And the fact that he serves in heaven and not on earth is just one more illustration of that. 
So again, he's boasting in Jesus. Jesus is best of all. He is a better priest, a better go-between, a better mediator between God and man than even the most faithful Old Testament priests could have been. Now, I mentioned that in the latter half of chapter 7, he compared Jesus to the Old Testament priest and said that he was a better priest. And so I want right now briefly to just review three reasons from chapter 7 why he's better and then give you three more reasons from chapter 8 why he is better than those other priests. And so if you will, there are six reasons, six ways that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. Number one from chapter 7, he has a better appointment. A better appointment. Verse 21, the Old Testament priests became priests without an oath. In other words, they were not hand-selected by God or even by their peers because they were worthy men or godly men. The Old Testament priests were selected not with an oath. They weren't so much sworn in as they were grandfathered in. They were priests simply because of the family into which they were born, whether they loved God or not. But Jesus, verse 21, was sworn in with an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus wasn't grandfathered in because of where he was born or what family he was born into. Jesus was hand selected by God to be our priest. Sworn in by God because he was worthy, because he was holy, because he was willing and able to be the person to bridge the gap between God and man. Jesus was hand selected. God appointed him specifically and thus he is a better priest. He's been given a better appointment. He's also, secondly, a better priest, we said, because he has a longer tenure than those Old Testament priests. To put it quite bluntly, from chapter 7, verse 23, all the Old Testament priests are dead. And their ministry is therefore ended. But Jesus, as we rejoiced in last Sunday, continues forever. He is alive. And chapter 7, verse 25, he is therefore able to, to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Because Jesus' priesthood is permanent, the effect of His work is also permanent. The Old Testament priests couldn't say that. The forgiveness that they offered to the people had to do with them coming year by year, again and again and again, and offering the blood of bulls and goats. And it was a temporary forgiveness. That's why they had to do it again and again and again. And eventually they died and someone else had to take their place. And now they're all dead and there's no more temple and there's no more sacrifices. But Jesus still remains. And his sacrifice is still sufficient for us. He lives forever, verse 25. And the forgiveness that he offers is therefore lasting forever. Jesus is a better priest. He has served and he continues to serve with a longer tenure than those of the Old Testament. Thirdly, he is a better priest because he lived a holier life. Holier life, verses 26 and 27. As the Old Testament priests offered his daily sacrifices and his yearly sacrifices, he had, verse 27, each time to offer first sacrifices for his own sins. But not Jesus. When Jesus went to that cruel Roman cross, he went not bearing any sins of his own. He was, verse 26, holy and innocent and undefiled, separated from sinners. He was, chapter 4, verse 15, tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin. The Old Testament priests are constantly making sacrifices, not only for the people, but for themselves. But Jesus never had to do that because he's perfect. 
He was able not only to be the priest, but the sacrifice for us. And so we never need to worry because we have a perfect priest. We never need to worry that God is going to rebuff our priest because he's unclean and to send him away and say, you can't serve today. We never need to worry that the sacrifice he offered will be rejected because of the dirty hands with which it was offered. The priests of old were sinful men and they couldn't say that. Jesus is a better priest because he lived a holier life. In fact, a perfectly holy life. Three reminders that Jesus is a better priest from chapter 7. Now there are three more uh, reasons that we find here in today's passage, chapter 8. The first of those, which is number four overall, is that Jesus is a better priest because he served in a better tabernacle. Now, since chapter 8 is our focus this morning, I do want to give more detail to these latter three reasons. But since we've already spoken a bit about the better tabernacle in verses 1 and 2, and since the author is going to give most of chapter 9 to this same topic, I'm still going to try to be somewhat brief with this first one. But the point again is Jesus is a better priest because he served in a better tabernacle. Now read verses 1 and 2 again. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Now, what the author is doing here is he's making a comparison between the two different work sites, the work site where Jesus did his work and the work site where the priests did their work. And what he says is the priests very obviously offered their sacrifices in a tabernacle, which later they built a temple made out of stones instead of just a tent, but they did their work here on earth in a tabernacle pitched by man. Moses built that tabernacle and set it up. And then Solomon later built a temple in the same shape and set that up. And the priests served on earth in temple tabernacle pitched by man. You can go to its former location in Jerusalem today and see some of the stones that aren't left one upon another. But When Jesus offered his blood for us, according to verse 2, he did so in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. In other words, he took his bloody, nail-pierced hands and feet. He took his offering and he walked, verse 1, right up to the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And we know Jesus died physically on earth right outside of Jerusalem on a cross. And so in that sense, his sacrifice is similar Um, to the priests, but after he died, and this is the point here, Jesus didn't present his offering on earth and then go back home and do his thing. When he presented his offering, then he ascended into heaven and his nail-pierced hands and the blood of his covenant is forever on the mercy seat that's before God in heaven. God doesn't have to look down to earth to a temple in order to see that the blood has been shed. It's right there before him forever in front of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Our sacrificial lamb wasn't simply offered up on earth, but he forever stands before the throne of God above, reminding God that our sins are forgiven. And verse 5 further explains that Jesus served in a better better tabernacle, a further um, explanation of the difference between where the priest worked and where Jesus works The earthly tabernacle that Moses constructed, he says in verse 5, was merely a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
Moses' tabernacle and, and by the same token Solomon's temple that these priests worked in was just a copy and a shadow of something bigger and better that existed in heaven. That's why at the end of verse 5, Moses had to go up on the mountain. And this actually happened in Exodus 25. You can read it later. Moses had to go up on top of this mountain and get plans from God, blueprints, if you will, for the tabernacle. There on the mountain, as Moses stood there with God, God peeled back the curtains and gave Moses a glimpse of what the throne room in heaven looks like. And then he said, Moses, when you go back down and you build this tabernacle for me where these sacrifices are going to be offered, I want you to make it according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. I want you to make it in the way that I showed you. I want you to take what you saw when I peeled back the curtain and showed you the throne room of heaven and make the tabernacle look like that. And the point is, The earthly tabernacle is just a copy. It's just a small scale model of the throne room in heaven where God sits forever. So the tabernacle where the priests did their daily duty was a wonderful place, but it wasn't the place. It was just the copy. It was like one of those little model cars, you know, a 1 to 24 model car. It was a small copy of the real thing. Or one of these places, they have them all around in different places in America. They have them in in Israel too where they they make replicas of uh, things like the Old Testament temple. And you can go around and walk in a little small replica of the temple and see what it might have been like. That's what it was. The, The temple that we make replicas of was actually a replica of something in heaven. And so Moses built that tabernacle, Solomon built that temple, and the priests served there in these copies and shadows But Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, didn't serve in the copy and the shadow. He took his blood. He took his nail piercings. He took his body, which was the sacrifice, and he went, verse 1, to the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The priest's work is done wholly on earth in a mere copy and shadow. But Jesus, after having suffered on earth, sat down at the right hand of God on high. He serves in a better tabernacle. Fifthly, he's better than the Old Testament priests in that he offered a better sacrifice. Now, we noted this last week from chapter 7, and we said then that his sacrifice was better simply that he offered himself. The priests didn't offer themselves. No one else will ever offer themselves for your sin. Jesus loved you more than they love you. Because he gave himself, not just a lamb or a bull or a goat. But chapter 8 reminds us again that Jesus' sacrifice was better than those bulls and goats for a different reason. Verse 3 says, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Now just pause there. The old, old covenant priest did that. They offered lambs and bulls and goats and very other, various other animals for people's sins. But just like the tabernacle was merely a copy and shadow, so were those offerings. We read in chapter 10, verse 11, that bulls and goats and sheep and all those things can never take away sins. They're just copies. Nonetheless, the priests were commanded to do this, and they did it faithfully, which they should have. But the point is, if those Old Testament priests who were offering sacrifices that were only copies and shadows, if they had to have a sacrifice to present, it is necessary, the end of verse 3, that this high priest, namely Jesus, also have something to offer. 
they offered copies. And so it was necessary that Jesus, who was going into the true tabernacle, have something to offer too. So if they're offering copy sacrifices in the copy tabernacle, and Jesus is offering something in the true tabernacle, what do you think we can say about his sacrifice? It's the true sacrifice that those things are pointing to. He didn't offer another copy or another shadow, another little matchbox car. Jesus came and he offered the real thing. Jesus came and he offered the blood of the true lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus, verse 27 of chapter 7, offered up himself as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you think about it logically, that only makes sense, doesn't it? Hebrews 10.4, if you want to look at it, tells us this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Why? Because if God is going to be just, human sins have to be avenged for with human blood. It will never do, ultimately, for God to allow intelligent, willfully sinning human beings like me and like you, to go free just because some unintelligent, unknowing sheep that doesn't even have a soul is sliced open on the altar in Jerusalem. That doesn't make sense for God to take willful sinners and punish their sins and let them go free because some sheep that didn't even know any better died for them. No. Human sin must be atoned for with human blood. We're the only ones created in God's image. We're the only ones that sin against him willfully. And humans have to pay for human sins. So, of course, the Old Testament sacrifices weren't the real thing. Of course, they were merely copies and shadows, symbols, pointing us forward to a great human sacrifice that would be made for us. Of course, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away human sins. And of course, Jesus then, the Son of God, who was fully God and fully man by offering his very own blood, was offering to God an infinitely better sacrifice than those priests ever could. Jesus is better than the priests and he offers a much better sacrifice than they. Now, before we go on to number six, the sixth way that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests, I want to pause here and summarize what we've said and then give you a few brief practical applications. I don't want this simply to be a theology course. I want you to know what you need to do with this. So let me summarize and then apply. What we've been saying is this. Jesus is far greater than any of the priests of the Old Testament, than all of them put together. Because, number one, he was sworn in with a better appointment, with the oath of God and not merely by an ancestral birthright. Number two, because he serves with a longer tenure. He lives forever. Number three, because he serves with a holier life. He does not need, like the priests of old, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins. Number four, because he ministers in a better tabernacle, having taken his blood not merely into the earthly copy, but into the real thing in the throne room of heaven. And number five, because he offered a better sacrifice. He gave himself a human sacrifice to pay for human Sins, because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Now, what do we make of all this? What do we say practically about what to do with all this? What do we do with all this theological detail once the sermon has ended? We go out and just look over our notes and repeat it. What do we do with it? You know, Monday morning, what do you do with this? 
Let me give you a handful of suggestions, three of them in fact. One is don't fail to praise Jesus. Don't fail to praise Jesus. One of the main points of the book of Hebrews is to get you to see that as admirable as the Old Testament heroes were, as important as their roles, as fascinating as their stories, as holy as some of their lives, Jesus is far greater than they. Jesus is more admirable, more important, more fascinating, more holy. Jesus is best of all. And therefore, our mouths, like little second grade boys in the classroom, ought to be bragging on our Savior, saying, He's the best. It doesn't matter what anybody says to me. I know He is the best. He is far better than anything else we have to look at or to offer. Secondly, what do we do with this information? Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. Don't be over enamored with religious rituals. Don't be over enamored with religious rituals. If... The God-ordained Old Testament rituals like the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the robes, the incense, the feast, if those things which were ordained by God are merely copies and shadows and, verse 13, destined to disappear, which they did in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed and Old Testament Judaism ended. It's never come back. If those things that God commanded were just copies and shadows, how should we think about our own symbols and rituals and practices in the church, our traditions? What I want to say to you is, don't come to church simply because you like the style or you like the music or you like the order of service. Those things are just vehicles to point us to Jesus. It doesn't matter if we have a piano today or not. We're not here for that. Don't get all worked up about how many crosses are hanging up in the building or how they're decorated. That doesn't matter. Those things are just symbols. And all the symbols that we have are only that. But Jesus is who we come for. Some of the symbols that we use aren't even very important. But Jesus is the reality. We come to church looking for him. Thirdly, practically, what do we do with this? Don't look to men for your salvation. Don't look to men for your salvation. Now stay with me because you may be thinking, oh, we would never do that. But stay with me. One of the goals of the author of Hebrews, one of the goals he's shooting for, especially in chapter 7 and 8, is to get these Hebrew church people to stop being so captivated with these priests. I mean, it was easy to be captivated by them. They were important culturally. They had cool, really cool outfits. They worked in the temple, which was like the best place in the world ever to go and visit. And so these men ran the place. And on top of that, they seemed to have some very important religious significance. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Don't look to them. Don't be captivated by them. Don't be enamored with them. And when you read what he says... Reading between the lines, you get the feeling that his audience was filled with people who thought that they couldn't live without their religious professionals. They perhaps couldn't get to heaven without their religious professionals and their rituals. And what I want to say to you is there are many people today who think the very same way. They really do. 
about their religious professionals. Now, we could all pick on our friends in the Roman Catholic Church and point out rightly that they teach that sins have to be confessed and even forgiven in the confessional by the priest. And we could read Hebrews 7 and 8 and go, obviously, that's not right. Jesus is the one mediator. We confess to him and he forgives us. But what I want to say to you, rather than picking on others, I want to point out to you, as I wrote a couple of weeks ago in the bulletin, that we Baptists have been very guilty of the very same thing. For instance, some of you grew up thinking and being told that in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian, you needed to come down to where the pastor was, his little confessional at the front of the room, confess your sins to him, repeat something that he told you to repeat, and then have him pat you on the back and say, if you really meant what you just said, now you're born again. It's the same thing. It's the very same thing that these folks were shooting for and that many folks are shooting for when they go to the professional. Let me go to the religious professional. Tell them what I have to do. Pat me on the back. Do something. I can go. Now, forgive We've learned some of us, but it doesn't work. But more than that, we need to go beyond that and see that it will never work. It's not supposed to work. There isn't a religious professional in the world who can lead you through a prayer or a counseling session or a baptism or anything else he can do to you or for you that will really fix what ails you. There isn't a man in the world who can solve the problem of sin and the alienation from God that it creates. Jesus and Jesus alone does that. You can come to me and I'll gladly talk to you and point you to Jesus, but I can't fix it. I can't say something over you or get you to say something or get you to do something or get you to join something that will fix your problems. Jesus and Jesus alone is our go-between. Don't look to men. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man whose breath is in the life of his nostrils. Whose life, excuse me, is in the breath of his nostrils. Look to Jesus who is the one mediator between God and man. Now, we've summarized and tried to give a few practical applications to these first five points. Now, let's spend the rest of our time on the sixth and final reason Jesus is a better priest than those of the Old Testament. And that is because, number six, he is the mediator of a better covenant. Read verse six again. He is the mediator of a better covenant. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Jesus is better, he says, than the old covenant priest simply because he's mediating and operating under a better covenant than anything they had to work with. It's not that they were bad, it's just that what God gave them to work with wasn't the best plan, wasn't the plan that God was preparing for. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Now we need... If we're going to understand this point, to, to understand and define the word covenant. What is a covenant? Before we can appreciate that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, we have to answer, what is a covenant? Well, when we use that word, we, we have certain terms that come to our minds. Perhaps for you it's the word contract or agreement. Maybe a binding contract, a formal contract, a solemn agreement. All those words. So if we're going to define covenant, we might... We might try to put them together and say a covenant is a solemn, formal, binding contract or agreement between two individuals or parties. It's solemn, it's formal, it's binding, it's an agreement. It's not just an agreement. It's a very serious agreement. So it's not a mere contract like the one that you sign with your cell phone provider. 
you know, we're going to do this for three years and you'll provide this many minutes and, and we'll do this. And if we break it, then there may be some repercussions. But if we break it, it's not like there's shame and, and weeping and gnashing of teeth because it's just a contract after all. No, this is not what this is. This is a solemn contract, a solemn agreement. So in our culture, we only have a few kinds of covenants because it's so serious. Marriage is a covenant. When you adopt a child, you're making a covenant with that child that you're going to be their parent just as if they were born by your own flesh and blood. Church membership is a covenant. It's not something that we take lightly and just kind of bounce around and don't uh, really care if we follow through. There's only a few covenants that we enter into. There's only a few that God has entered into. And one of those... At least the greatest one, in fact, in the Old Testament was the covenant he entered into with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. God entered into a solemn, binding, formal agreement with them at Mount Sinai. And he said basically this in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. If you will obey my laws, then you, the nation of Israel, will remain my special chosen nation among all the peoples of the earth. I will favor you. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will walk with you. I will fight for you. And best of all, I will give you a land of your own in which to dwell. You'll no longer be strangers and aliens in the earth. He made them a promise. You keep my laws. I'll bless you, protect you, and give you somewhere to live. Sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? It's a very good deal. But Hebrews 8.6 informs us that Jesus is the mediator of an even better covenant than that. All those promises, I'll go with you, I'll protect you, I'll fight for you, I'll give you a place to live, and you'll live there forever as long as you obey me. Jesus makes even better promises than that. The agreement that God makes with us in Jesus is even better than that. Better than the covenant God made with the people through Moses. That's not to denigrate Moses or the people of the Old Testament. It's simply to say that God saved the best for last. God makes even better promises to His scattered spiritual people who live in every nation of the earth than He did with His gathered national people, the nation of Israel. The new covenant... The promises made to us in Jesus are better than those that they had through Moses. How? What advantages do we have that they did not? That's what the rest of the passage answers. I want to give you four uh, answers and then we're through. Four ways that the covenant God has made with His people in Jesus is better than the covenant even that He made with the Israelites to be their God and to fight for them and protect them and to bring them into the promised land. Number one, the new covenant is based on unconditional promises. Unconditional promises. We have God's unconditional promise. Verse 9, you'll notice that the Old Covenant was not like that. The Old Covenant was such a covenant that some people, verse 9, did not continue in it. Because the Old Covenant was linked to land and national prosperity and protection, not eternal salvation, but just all those earthly good things, because it was linked to all those things, God made that covenant conditional. The promises were conditional. Exodus 19.5 If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. If. First word of the agreement. If. So in the Old Covenant, the blessings of land and protection were conditioned upon the obedience of the people, but not so in the New Covenant. 
The new covenant that is described here. And by the way, these verses 8 through 12 are a quotation of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. But this new covenant that's described here is different. The blessings that come to us are, first of all, better blessings. God doesn't just promise us land. He promises us eternal life in heaven. And God doesn't condition our home in heaven on our obedience, but on Jesus' obedience. So for us, the promises of the new covenant are unconditional. If we are in Christ, God will not take away His blessings. It's a better promise. Secondly, the new covenant is better in that it's written on our hearts, not merely on tablets of stone. Look at verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant is written on our hearts, not merely on tablets of stone. The new covenant, as we said, is unconditional. God won't take away his blessings. But verse 10 is a reminder to us, is it not, that God still cares that we obey him. He didn't just say, well, there aren't any rules anymore. He said, I'll write them on your hearts. So God expects us to obey just like He expected the Old Testament Israelites to obey. But the difference is He gets obedience from us by writing His law in our minds and on our hearts. In other words, He gets obedience from us by making us want to obey. By making us love His law and believe that it's good for us. And the average Israelite didn't have that help. For the average Israelite, the law was written only on those tablets of stone and he obeyed it oftentimes simply because he was afraid of what would happen if he didn't. But we don't have to live like that. We don't merely have God's expectations for us carved on tablets of stone. We have them written on our hearts. If you're really a believer, you love the things of God and you love the ways of God and you see that they're good. They're not a burden to you. You see that they're good and you obey because you want to, not because you have to. That's better than what the Israelites had. Thirdly, the new covenant is entered into spiritually and not just physically. It's a better covenant. The old covenant was entered into physically. The new covenant entered into spiritually. Verse 11. They, meaning those people who live in God's new covenant, His new set of promises, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Now why is that? Why don't Christians, New Covenant citizens, have to teach one another to know the Lord? Well, because the New Covenant is different from the Old. In the Old Testament, you are a member of the people of God simply by virtue of being born into one of the twelve tribes of Israel. If you're born into one of those tribes, it didn't matter what you do, what your heart looked like, you were a part of this Old Covenant. Because it was a national covenant, a physical covenant. What that meant was that there were many, many Israelites who were partakers of the Old Covenant because they were Israelites physically. They were living in the land of promise. They were trying to obey the Ten Commandments. They were blessed with God's physical protection, but they didn't really know the Lord. They were simply Jewish by birth. And so the Old Covenant people were having constantly to urge one another to really believe, to know the Lord, because not all of them did. Not so in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, we don't become part of God's family by birth, but by rebirth. Our membership in the family of God, in the church of God, has nothing directly to do with family ties. We become a part of the church because we believe on Christ. 
Now, clearly, there were many Old Testament people who believed as well. As they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, they had the same faith that we do. Hebrews 11, in fact, is a celebration of that fact. So we're not saying that no one in the Old Testament loved God or trusted God or believed in the Messiah. Far from it. There are many wonderful believers in the Old Testament who were saved eternally just like we are by faith in Jesus. But the point of this passage is that they didn't need to have faith to be part of that old covenant. They didn't need to have faith to be a part of the nation of Israel, the physical people of God. They didn't need to have faith to enter into the Sinai covenant because it wasn't a promise of eternal salvation. It was just a promise of earthly blessing of the nation. That's why I've referred a few times to the average Israelite. Because Israelite was a mixed multitude. There were many people who were true believers, who loved the Lord, but there were many people who weren't. And it seems when you read the Old Testament that the average Israelite wasn't a believer. Maybe he was a nice fellow. Maybe he was trying to obey the commandments, but his faith wasn't in the coming Messiah. So he was a part of this national group of people that were blessed by God, but he wasn't really a believer. But the new covenant, again, works differently. The new covenant is entered into not based on lineage, but based on faith in Christ. And therefore, the point of verse 11 is the church is supposed to be a gathering of people who really know Jesus and who love Jesus because you enter into the family of God by knowing Jesus and trusting Jesus. The church is a gathering of people who know Jesus. Therefore, the church ought to be a much more lively and spiritual environment than any Old Testament village could possibly have ever been because all who are truly a part of the church know the Lord. That's a challenge, isn't it? We shouldn't have to, as I said earlier, constantly be rebuking one another because we aren't acting like we really love God. All who are really a part of God's family know the Lord. And to know the Lord is to love the Lord. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be folks who are here every Sunday whom we love dearly, but who are not as yet part of the family of God. If you're here today or week by week and you don't know the Lord, we're glad that you're here. There's no place that we would rather you be. But this passage is simply reminding us that being a part of the New Testament family of God is different from simply being a good family friend. They're two different things. Only those who know the Lord can call themselves His children. So this is a good opportunity for me to pause, isn't it, and speak to those of you who may not know the Lord and to urge you this morning who are as yet outside the family of God to know the Lord. Know the Lord Jesus. Trust Him. Embrace Him as your only mediator, your only go-between between you and God. Believe on Him and know Him and you would enter into this new covenant family that we're thinking about. So the new covenant is better. We have better promises because all of us who are truly a part of God's New Testament people already know the Lord. Fourthly and finally, the new covenant is better than the old because the new covenant offers complete eternal forgiveness, not sacrifices year by year. Complete and eternal forgiveness, not sacrifices year by year. We've touched in each of the last two sermons, today and last Wednesday, on how the priests of the Old Testament 
had continually, year by year by year, to offer sacrifices for the people of God. It was like they knew that the effect was going to wear off after a while. They understood somehow that the blood of bulls and goats wasn't quite sufficient. So they kept coming year by year on the Day of Atonement and other days as well and offering the same sacrifices again and again and again. And really, each time a person sinned, there was a need for another sacrifice. Because those sacrifices were just constant reminders that you need forgiveness. But they didn't actually do anything. The cycle never ended. A person could never feel really fully, finally forgiven in the Old Testament system unless they looked forward to Christ. But if they just looked at those bloody bulls and goats, there was never a sense that it's all done and God has forgiven it all. But what a thrill it is to turn to the New Testament to understand and be a part of this new covenant people of God and to remember, verse 12, that for us, God will remember our sins no more. Jesus' blood is so much better than the bulls of goats, uh, blood of bulls and goats. Those priests on the Day of Atonement would come in and they would take the goat and they would lay their hands on the goat and they would confess all the sins of the nation of Israel onto the head of that goat, uh, as it were, transferring the sins onto the goat to make atonement for the people. But then they had to do it again next year. Because the people kept sinning. And the next year. And the next year. And what's worse, you can imagine the priest standing there and saying, my job is to confess all the sins of all the nation of Israel on the head of this goat today and make atonement for them. I don't even know these people. I don't know what their sins are. And if I did know what their sins are, it would take me years to list them all on the head of this goat. They didn't know the thoughts and the intentions of people's hearts. Only God knows that. But when God sent His Son, the sacrifice of the new covenant to that tree outside of Jerusalem, God knew every one of your sins, didn't He? Even your secret ones. Even the ones that had not been committed, which for us is all of them. And knowing all of our sins, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The Lord put His hand on the head of the sacrifice and put every single one of our sins on Jesus. And so Jesus, unlike these Old Testament sacrifices, bore once and for all, all of our sins. And we, unlike the average Old Testament person, can say with confidence, God will remember my sins no more. They had to keep saying it year by year. God won't remember any of the sins I did this year, but next year I'm going to have to do this again. We can say, God will remember my sins no more. Can you say that? Wouldn't you love to be able to say that? If you would, then what you need to do is come to Jesus. Not to me, not to any other religious ritual or activity or event or rite, but to come to Jesus who's the mediator of a better covenant. And Romans 10 says that he who believes in him will not be disappointed.